Good morning, gents. Welcome. We're going to make a start. Why don't you, um, let's come on in, let's fill up groups from the front. Harry, that's, that's not nearly close enough. Come in here, boobs, come and join me. Come on, Cammy. Grab final coffees, uh, croissants. That's the spirit. Lovely looking group right in the middle. Bruce going begging, just there. Oh, he's going miles away. I'd love to welcome up Jonathan Aitken, who is going to introduce uh, this morning's speaker uh, for us. Good morning, everyone. It gives me a particular pleasure to introduce our speaker this morning, who rose to catch the 4 a.m. train from Oxford, Michael Lloyd. Um, he is the principal of Wycliffe Hall. Um, I think as a former alumnus, I can call it uh, the Church of England's, uh, one of the Church of England's most distinguished theological colleges. Uh, it's not <coughs> just because many people like me got a great education there, but Michael's just told me that the next year's intake, uh, Wycliffe is going to hit its highest ever number of incoming theology students, which is no small achievement. Before taking up his appointment at Wycliffe, Michael was a college chaplain at Oxford and Cambridge, and also, I think, at St. Paul's Theological College and St. Melitus. Uh, he's the author of a very popular work, Cafe Theology. He has a quintessential list of uh, English interests, uh, Handel's operas, Shakespeare's plays, cricket, walking in the countryside, and one offbeat one, puppetry. Uh, he wrote his doctoral the thesis uh, on the problem of evil, and it's that riveting subject on which he's now going to address us. Please welcome Michael Lloyd. Jonathan, thank you very much indeed. Um, yes, puppetry. Um, I try to make sure that it doesn't influence my leadership style. Um, although you better ask my colleagues about that, I suppose. Um, just before we start, I uh, just wanted to say that um, on a subject of this nature, the pro problem of suffering, the problem of evil, uh, there's likely in a group this size to be somebody who's going through intense pain right now, somebody for whom this is not just an academic subject. Uh, and I want to say... Uh, that if that's you, um, don't feel bad that your faith is shaken by such uh, a struggle, because that shows that it's integrated with the rest of your life and is not being held in a watertight compartment. So don't add guilt to all the other dimensions of your problems. It's proper and appropriate that your faith should suffer along with the rest of you. And remember that shaken faith is still faith. Let's pray briefly before we start. Lord, we thank you for your good and beautiful world that you have created, that you came to visit, that you took into yourself in the person of Jesus Christ. And we struggle to understand why it is so marred, why it is so full of uh, pain, suffering, violence, injustice. And we pray that you will help us by your spirit this morning to understand that, uh, that you will help us to 
understand it in a way that enables us to fight against it, to join you in your uh, determination to eradicate all that mars your creation so that we may be co-workers with you for the healing of your world in jesus name amen so there was a surgeon an anesthetist an architect and a politician uh, and they were having a debate amongst themselves as to which was the oldest and most venerable profession and the surgeon said, well, clearly surgery is the oldest profession. If you look at the book of Genesis, uh, God takes a rib out of the man and makes it into a woman, the first surgical operation. Clearly ours is uh, the oldest and most venerable profession. At which point the anesthetist said, oh, come on, what's he do before that? He, he puts the man into a deep sleep. It's one of the things we anesthetists do and uh, preachers do as well quite often. Um, uh, ours is clearly the oldest and most venerable profession. At which point the architect said, oh, come on, that's Genesis 2. What happens in Genesis 1? God creates the heavens and the earth. He brings order out of chaos, the first piece of architecture. Ours is clearly the oldest and most venerable profession. At which point the politician said, ah, but who created the chaos? <laughs> um, and that's the question I want to look at a little bit with you. Uh, his apologies to politicians in our midst. Um, uh, that's the question I want to look at with you this morning a little bit. Uh, who created the chaos? Where did it come from? If the world is created by a good, loving, and all-powerful God, how come it is so torn apart by not just the chaotic, but the virulent and uh, the unjust? And what I want to do is to um, look at four useful, but I think ultimately unsatisfactory answers that are often given to this question. Uh, and then I will suggest one which I think is slightly less inadequate uh, at the end. So the first useful but ultimately unsatisfactory answer is the free will argument. The free will argument. Suppose instead of being in love with my very lovely wife, um, I was in love with a woman called Gertrude. Uh, and I ought to add at this point that Gertrude is a fictitious character. Uh, any resemblance to any human personage, personage, living or dead, is entirely uh, unintentional. Possibly Freudian, I suppose, but we won't go there. And suppose, just suppose that Gertrude didn't return my love. I know it's stretching credibility somewhat, but there's no accounting for lack of taste. Uh, so I love Gertrude, but she doesn't love me. So, so far, so bad. But suppose further I pour out my woes to a psychiatrist. And at the end of the session, the psychiatrist says to me, look, I happen to be able to hypnotize people. It's one of the tricks of the trade. I use it for trying to cure people of the wanting to smoke, that sort of thing. Why don't I, says the psychiatrist... Why don't I meet up with Gertrude at a party or something, hypnotize her, pretending it's just a bit of fun, and while she's under, under, under hypnosis, tell her that when she wakes up, she'll be madly in love with you and that you're, she'll consider you the most attractive, witty, and intelligent man she's ever met. And supposing I agree to this on the grounds that it's per, purely therapeutic for Gertrude, healing her of her current blindness and helping her see things the way they truly are. And suppose it worked. Would I be satisfied with the love 
I received? Would I feel affirmed and wanted and chosen and cherished, knowing all along that it was a sham, that it was a programmed reaction in her and not a freely chosen self-giving? I can't imagine anyone being satisfied with that. Or if they were, I don't think they would know the meaning of the word love. Because love has to be freely given or it's nothing at all. And I would rather forfeit Gertrude's love than force it. Because love that is forced is not love at all. And so it is with God. He could, no doubt, have created a world in which there was no suffering. By programming, by brainwashing, by hypnotizing, by controlling all his creatures so that they always did what he wanted them to do. By presetting them to love him and to love one another. He could have refrained from giving us any real freedom, allowing us to make any real choices, any real decisions. He could have kept all power tightly in his own hands and thereby he could have ensured that only what he wanted to happen would ever occur. I take it that God could have made such a world. But if you were God, would you want to make such a world? Because if there's no real freedom, then there's no real love either. Your creatures wouldn't love you it would be a pre-programmed sham. And actually, you couldn't love them either, because if you did, it would simply be you loving yourself. Because if you kept all power tightly in your own hands, actually, you'd be the only person who did anything in your world. You'd be the only one who acted in your world. You'd be the only agent. The whole thing would be a complete pretense. It would be a toy world. It's a bit, bit like the scene with, where Mr. Bean but gives himself a birthday card and opens it and goes, oh, that's nice. Because um, <laughs> if you don't have freedom, you can't have love. If you don't have choice, you're not a character. If you don't have power, you're not a person. You're just a robot. And I'm not sure I'd want to make such a world any more than I'd want the love of a hypnotized Gertrude. Give your creatures freedom and choice and power, however, and they become different from you. They become real people, making real choices, forging real characters of their own, capable of real relationship and genuine love. Now, a world like that would be meaningful and worthwhile. In a world like that, love would mean something because it would be freely given. The problem, of course, is that in a world like that, love can be withheld too. In a, such a world where people are different from God, there is necessarily the risk that they may act differently from how God would like them to act. They may use their freedom in ways that hurt God, hurt others, and hurt themselves. That's always the risk when you let power out of your hands and give it to others. Ask any parent. 
Freedom is essential because without it, existence is meaningless, but freedom can be abused. And that, the free will defender believes, is precisely what has happened. That's why the world is the way it is, because it's a real world and not a sham world. It's a free world and not a robotic world. And tragically, we've often used our freedom to choose what's wrong, to choose what looks nice for us at the expense of what is good for others. So why did God create a world full of suffering? Answer, he didn't. He created a world that was good, but free. And it is our abuse of that freedom that has brought about the suffering. Now, the argument I've been mounting thus far is what is known technically as the free will defense. And it's called that because it seeks to defend God against the charge of being to blame for the evil and suffering in the world by attributing that evil and suffering to the free will that he has given to men and women. And by suggesting that it was nevertheless a good thing that we were given that free will. And it's an argument that in its more philosophical articulations, even than I've challenged you with this morning, uh, has been shown to be logically watertight. Except for one obvious gaping hole. And that's this. The free will defense may account for why our world has hatred in it, why it has murder in it, why it has muggings in it, why it has wars in it. But what about diseases? What about earthquakes? What about drought? What about famine? They're not the products of human malevolence. They appear to be built into the very way the world is constructed, the very way it's set up. So how do we explain why appalling tragedies like that are allowed to disfigure God's creation? So the free will defense is useful because it explains very well, I think, why God might allow us to do nasty things to each other, what is known in the trade as moral evil, but it's ultimately unsatisfactory because it fails to explain natural evil. So let's look at useful but ultimately unsatisfactory answer number two, and let me assure you that they get shorter uh, as we go along. Um, the second I have called the public school argument for reasons that will be clear to those who've experienced such institutions. Uh, for those who haven't, it could be called the soul-making argument. And it is that God allows natural evil and suffering because they're good for us. That's why those of you who've experienced public schools will understand the reference. Really. Uh, anything that's really unpleasant must be good for you. Uh, and character building, that sort of thing. There are those who think that suffering from natural causes is good for us. It's character building. It's soul making. And that God is justified in making this world a veil of tears because it will be better for having gone through such suffering than it would have been without. It's the kind of cold bath principle. Uh, cold baths have made me the man I am today and therefore have quite a lot to answer for. Um, I don't know if you know the American kind of popular spirituality books, Chicken Soup for the Soul. Do you know the Chicken Soup for the Soul books? A few nods around. Um, they're subtitled Stories to Warm the Heart and Inspire the Spirit. There's also a, a shorter series of books 
which are a kind of satire on the chicken soup for the soul books, entitled Chicken Poop for the Soul, uh, subtitled Stories to Harden the Heart and Dampen the Spirit. And I suspect you already know me well enough to know which I'm going to prefer, particularly given that my students call me Dr. Evil. Um, mainly, I like to think because of my interest in this subject. Uh, so here's a little quotation from uh, one of the chicken poop for the soul books. Uh, and you have to imagine the kind of Disney voiceover accent, which I'm not going to attempt, but may drift into uh, subconsciously as we go through. I guess the first important lesson my dad taught me was to be independent. I was just four years old when he took me to the shopping center and left me there. I'll never forget that feeling as I watched him drive away with just that little loving wave. <laughs> A few days later, when that nice policeman brought me home, my dad and I both knew I'd learned a very important lesson. I'll never forget the day, the day of my ninth birthday. Dad was driving, and I was next to him in the passenger seat. Suddenly, he screamed, Think fast! and jumped right out of the car. I had to learn to drive right there on the spot. But as long as I live, I'll never forget that broad, proud smile on his face when I pulled the old car up the driveway. Well, that was my old man. But as Dad got older and that cough became worse, he knew he wasn't going to be always there for me to make sure I could handle the real tough times. I was 14 years old, I remember, when the police came to the high school to arrest me. As they booked me, they explained that an anonymous caller had informed them that I'd held up a convenience store. I smiled. That was my old man. <laughs> but two days later, he was right there to bail me out. My old man isn't here anymore but I never forget the lessons he taught me. So sometimes late at night when I'm sitting on the floor, I look at my son sleeping like an angel and I know that someday soon I'll be taking him to the mall, just like my old man. Well, you get the point. And it's not without its truth. God can and he does bring good out of suffering. I look back on a year of doubt and depression that I experienced in my last year of theological college as my main qualification for ministry in many ways. That is what taught me such pastoral sensitivity as I have. But this view is unsatisfactory for two reasons. First of all, the miracles of Jesus. When Jesus healed people, he didn't seem too concerned about the benefits of which he was thereby depriving them. He didn't say, no, I better not heal you. The suffering is doing you good and the illness is a real blessing. So I'll just leave you like that. You have a good day now. Or if he did, it was never reported. No, he just went right ahead and healed them. For him, suffering and death were distortions of God's good creation. They were things to be fought against and eradicated, not things to be rejoiced in. And it seems to me that those who follow him should have the same view and fight the same fight. And the second reason why this view doesn't work is that some suffering is just so appalling 
that it seems almost obscene to talk about the good that may come from it, as if that somehow outweighs the evil of the suffering itself, as if it somehow makes it okay. Well, it isn't okay. This can be glib talk, and it can belittle people's experience of their own suffering. So yes, God does bring good out of suffering. I know that from my own experience. I expect many others here do too. But I don't think that lets him off the hook. So let's look at the third useful but ultimately unsatisfactory answer. And that is that natural evil often turns out to have been caused by human sin. It appears to be natural. It appears to be unconnected with human volition. But actually, the more you find out about it, the more you find that human beings have played a part. So you remember, some of you, the Herald of Free Enterprise, which was a ferry uh, some 20, 25 years ago now, that uh, sank on its way back from Zeebrugge to this country. And initially, it looked like it had been hit by a freak wave. It was just an, an obvious example of natural evil. Actually, the more we discovered about it, actually the more investigative journalists got to work on it, the more we discovered that the company that ran this ship had been taking shortcuts with its safety procedures, that they'd actually left harbour with the doors, the gates still open in order to cut down the travel time between Zeebrugge and here in order to have more journeys and crossings and make more money. And it was because the gate was open, the door was open, that it had sunk. Or take the famine in Sudan. Uh, again, it looks like a simple failure of the rains and therefore a failure of the crops. But actually, the more you began to look at it, it wasn't the lack of food that was the problem. It was the civil war that meant that food couldn't be taken to the places that people needed it. That was the problem. So in fact, it was human sin that was the problem. I think this is useful because it whittles away at the problem, it narrows the problem, it cuts it down, but it's ultimately unsatisfactory because in the end, you cannot trace all disasters to human agency. What about lightning? If somebody gets struck by lightning, who are you going to blame? So let's look at our fourth and last useful but unsatisfactory arguments. And that is that natural disasters occur because of the disruption caused by the fall, by the sin of Adam and Eve, that their sin changed the whole way in which nature operates, making it now conflicted and divided and no longer working cooperatively with us, but against us. You remember the <clears throat> story in Genesis 3 of uh, how when they rebelled against God, they were divided up against God, but they then, which you see in the fact that they hid from God when he appeared, uh, but then that brought about a division within their relationship with each other. Um, so they blame each other, their children kill each other. It creates a division within themselves, they feel shame, and what is shame other than one bit of you not being happy with another bit of you, a division, internal division, uh, and it created a division between them and the natural world. You get thistles growing up, uh, work becomes toil, uh, and you get pain in childbirth and all of that. seems to me that this is a profoundly helpful analysis of the human condition because it suggests that the sociological divisions 
with which our world is rent, the psychological divisions that we feel within ourselves, and the ecological divisions that damage our cooperation with the environment, are ultimately the consequence of the basic fundamental division, which is the theological division between us and God. That's useful analysis in terms of understanding these things, but it's also a hopeful analysis because it means that if you can do something about the fundamental relationship between us and God, if you can heal that, then all the other relationships can in principle and in time be healed as well. And I think it's plausible because we live and we, the more we discover about our world, the more interrelated we discover that it is. So, you know, the famous butterfly effect that an insect beating its wings in Madagascar can cause a hurricane in Hawaii. That's how interconnected everything is. So I think it's useful, I think it's hopeful, I think it's plausible, but it's unsatisfactory because if there's any truth to modern science at all, then there's been pain and killing and suffering and death in creation long before human beings even emerged. So it will not do to blame it all on human beings. If the world is out of sync because we're out of sync with God and with one another, then perhaps we can understand why natural disasters occur now, but why before the fall? Why before human beings ever emerged? How can we reconcile what we know from science that as far back as we can see from the records and the fossils, we find evidence of one species preying upon another for its very survival? How do we reconcile all that with the Genesis account, which sees all such things as the result of human disobedience and presents the time before the fall as a time of harmony, peace, and bliss. Or does it? I don't actually think it does. I used to think it did, and then went and had a look, uh, and it doesn't. For one thing, you've got the serpent. And however you interpret the serpent, here is a bit of the created order that is actively working against the purposes of God before human beings rebel. And secondly, there's the command to fill the earth and subdue it, which suggests that there's something that needs subduing even before they disobey God. There's something that needs putting right. Something has already gone wrong even before they themselves sin. So if there's stuff that needs subduing, why? What's gone wrong? And so we come back to our original question. Well, now we get to the bit where I give you my, uh, I think, slightly less inadequate answer. Uh, leave that for you to decide in questions. Um, it's speculative. I can't prove it. It's not taught in the Bible, though I think there is biblical evidence for it. It's not the teaching of any major denomination of the church. It's not in the creeds you get the general impression that I'm a maverick out here. Um, you don't have to believe it to be a Christian or anything like that. All that I claim is that it fits the facts. Uh, it, and the facts both theologically and scientifically. And it's this. In Jewish and Christian tradition, human beings are not the only free rational beings in creation. There is a whole spiritual dimension of which we're normally unaware 
but which may be nonetheless real for that. I'm talking about the angelic, the demonic realms. Again, within Jewish and Christian tradition, the angels were given the job of caring for creation, looking after it. And again, in Christian and Jewish tradition, there's been a rebellion within that realm, within that spiritual dimension of creation. Prior to the human fall, it is believed that there was an angelic fall, the whole Lucifer being expelled from heaven and all of that. Now, all that I'm suggesting is that that could have distorted the way in which creation developed, that so interconnected are the different dimensions of creation that what happens in the spiritual dimension can impact negatively upon what happens in the material dimension. So this is my scenario. As Jonathan mentioned, <coughs> I'm a great Shakespeare fan, and scenario sounds a bit like a Shakespearean character uh, in love with the fair agenda or something like that. Um, or perhaps like a Brazilian footballer, you know, Ronaldo to scenario, scenario to... Sorry, shouldn't mention Ronaldo, sorry, sorry. Um, this, is, this is the scenario. God begins the process of creation. Everything is in harmony with everything else because it's in harmony with its maker. You get a rebellion within the angelic realm. That brings about division, distortion, pain, suffering, death, predation. Everything doesn't fit. Everything grates. Everything conflicts. Everything is in competition. Through a process of evolution, humanity emerges. And human beings are called to undo the evil that the angelic fall had caused, to fill the earth and subdue it, to heal creation, to bring it back to that order and harmony which was always God's intention and purpose for it. Instead of being the solution to the problem, however, human beings became part of the problem by joining in that rebellion. And that's why Genesis 3 can say it's all our fault, even though these things occurred before we appeared on the scene. Because had we remained faithful, we would have eradicated that evil, that suffering. So its continued occurrence is due to our disobedience, though its original occurrence was due to the angelic fall. And if you know what it, want to see what it would have looked like for human beings to have healed creation, look at the person of Jesus. Here at last is a human being doing what human beings were always intended to do, healing the wounds and the hurts and the divisions and the distortions of our world, stilling the storms, healing the sick, raising the dead, undoing the destructive effects of the angelic form. Here at last, their destructive effects are being put right and creation is being, beginning to be set free from its bondage to decay, to suffering and to death. Why did God let the angels rebel in the first place if he knew that they were going to have that sort of destructive effect? Because he didn't want to make them robots any more than he makes us robots. He couldn't force their love any more than he can force our love. He's just not the tyrant sort of God who insists that he makes all the decisions, he exercises all the power, and no one else has the freedom to gainsay him. He's the sort of God who gives his creatures real freedom lets them make real choices and real decisions, even 
when their decision is to withhold their love. He will not force us. So we come back full circle to the free will defense. And we come back to the position that all evil is the result of creatures abusing the free will that God has given them, but not just the human creatures. You've got to take into account also the other aspects and dimensions of God's multidimensional world, those of the angelic and the demonic realm. Well, that's my suggestion. Um, take it or leave it, or in fact, discuss it, challenge it in the question and answer that we have time for, I hope, in a minute or two. All I claim for it is that it enables us to say what we need to say. It enables us to say what we need to say theologically, which is that God is not the author of evil or suffering. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. It enables us to say what we need to say pastorally to those who are in pain, that what you are going through is not the will of God. Because we tend to think that God is behind our illness or our bereavement or whatever it is. And at the very time that we most need to know that God is with us and for us and on our side, we actually think of him as being against us and as being the cause of our problem and our pain. My suggestion enables us to say no. God is not against you. Your suffering is part of the evil that free creatures have brought into the world and God is against it, but he's for you. And finally, it enables us to speak with hope. Because if suffering doesn't belong in God's creation, if it's not something God has built deliberately into his world, if it's something extraneous to it, then it can be rooted out. If suffering was not the first word about creation, then it need not be the last and if all evil is ultimately moral evil, and if sin has been dealt with on the cross and Satan defeated, then we can look forward to a day when we see creation healed of all that currently mars it. A day on which all created things will be at peace, the wolf lying down with the lamb, the lion eating straw like the ox, the eyes of the blind opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame leaping, the dumb singing, the dead living, the wilderness blossoming, and the whole creation flooded with the presence and glory of God. Let's, let's take some questions for Mike while we've got him. Dr. Evil is in the house. He's got all the answers, and, <laughs> and he's going to bring an end. He's going to bring an end to all evil by 8 o'clock. Um, <laughs> Not asking much. So, um, questions. And, uh, and you have an, a second roving mic, I being the other one. <laughs> Yes, we have a question here. Uh, if the spiritual Eden was perfect, why did, the, uh, why did Lucifer see it fit to rebel? It, it, well, okay, I, I, let's cut the Eden bit out of it, because um, it, presumably he was in, in heaven and in the immediate presence of God. That, that is a, a very good question, and it is a question to which one cannot must not in fact give a complete answer because if you could give a complete answer to it it would suggest that sin is rational and sin is not ultimately rational 
But so all I can do is give a little account of how it becomes possible. It becomes possible through creatures being not God, being other than God, uh, and having a will of their own, having freedom of their own, uh, and therefore inevitably things that are not the will of God become possible. And I think I want to add to that the suggestion that they have, that the angels have imagination. They can imagine things being other than how they are. Uh, so they can look at, I'm talking pictorially here, but they can look at God on the throne and them worshipping him and think, ah, what if we change places here? Um, that would be nice. Uh, and and they have the freedom to entertain that thought and then to try and actualize it. Uh, that's not a complete answer. It must not be a complete answer, but it begins to explain how it could be that they might be such as to make that kind of decision. If, as you say, Jesus never refused healing to anyone, yeah. why then, when we pray with faith in his name, for healing, do we not see it? That's a very, very important question, pastorally and in all sorts of ways. <clears throat> um, and despite uh, what Pat very kindly said earlier, I don't have all the answers, but I do think that my suggestion helps here. Because without my suggestion, there are two answers to why somebody isn't healed. Either because the person was not, didn't pray enough, wasn't good enough, you know, there's some problem with the person, which is really unhelpful pastorally in 99.999% of cases. Or God doesn't want to do it for whatever reason. Those are the only two people you can blame. What, I, what my view does is to put another few pieces of the jigsaw onto the table, which enables us to get a bigger picture. And what it suggests is that it's, those are not the only two answers. The third answer is um, that maybe God's purposes are being thwarted and frustrated by opposition. That maybe God wants to bring healing into his world but is being uh, prevented from doing that to the extent that he would like by op demonic opposition. So what I'm taking here is um, Daniel 9 and 10 where Daniel is praying um, the archangel Michael turns up and says, sorry I'm late, I got held up on the highway uh, by the prince of Persia, but your prayers helped me get through. Now that suggests to me that what God wants to give us can get blocked, can get delayed, cannot be ultimately and forever frustrated, but can be significantly, seriously and tragically opposed and thwarted temporarily. Uh, and so actually pastorally I think my suggestion really helps because it can say no God does want your healing he does not want your cancer your whatever it may be uh, but he does not always get his way in the short term and we know that that sounds a worrying thing for, to say to some people but actually we know it's the case um, we know that God does not always get his way because sin happens there are not many knock-down arguments in theology, but that's one, I think, <laughs> that 
God does not always get his way, and we know that because sin happens. <clears throat> so all I'm doing, saying is that uh, demonic opposition is a sinful set of acts, and that therefore they mean that God does not always get his way. Thank you. You've explained how real love requires free will and how that introduces the possibility of evil. Then you've added that from the human realm into the angelic and demonic. So I think that what underlies everything you've said must be the answer to the following question, which is why does God want to be loved? Why does God want to be loved? Yes. Okay. Um, I think God wants to be loved uh, partly because he is love and therefore that is the basic fact about the universe. The doctrine of the Trinity is possibly the most important evangelistic doctrine in the world today, I think, because people want to know, they want to believe that love is primary, is basic, and they cannot see a way of believing that, given that we come from a competitive, violent, bloody engenderment. Uh, the doctrine of the Trinity says, no, God is the, the basic fact, the eternal fact is love, the love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Uh, and God wants others to share in that loving relationship, rather the same way that parents, two parents, have children because they want their children to share in that loving relationship that they have themselves. It's not because God needs to be loved uh, or that he lacks love. The doctrine of the Trinity says, no, he's He's been eternally loved in and of himself. That is what God is. But he wants from the overflow of that love to draw others into sharing the same experience, to participate in the divine nature, as St. Peter says. Um, so it's not that he needs to be loved. It's not some kind of deficiency in himself that he says, ah, I want to be praised, I want to be worshipped, I want to be loved. Um, it's that he wants people to enjoy that relationship which he has in himself. Um, if we um, rely heavily on the free will defense in whatever form, yep. are we in danger of compromising the sovereignty of God? Um, what do you sort of make of um, the sort of talk which um, talks about the way that we talk about God's will in, in more than one different way, or two wills in God, that sort of thing? I think it's a very important question, and I think we've got to be careful what we mean by the sovereignty of God, because we think we know, and what we often do is to project our experience of human bosshood to the nth degree onto God. And it doesn't work because we're fallen, and our idea of power and what it's for is not necessarily God's idea of power and what it's for. Now, the word sovereignty uh, is basically the same as kingship or rule. Um, and the, king, the rule of God, the kingship of God, the kingdom of God are things that break into this world in the person and work and life and death and resurrection of Jesus. They're not things that pertained anyway. Uh, if, if, if they were always the case, you wouldn't need Jesus to break in to human history. And, and bring it and put it right and heal it. So it is not a way of saying, so properly understood, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is not saying that everything happens the way God wants it to happen. Precisely not. Uh, because sin. You know, the world is riddled with 
sin and its effects. That's not what God wants. In fact, the sovereignty of God is that which breaks in in the person of Jesus. And you see it when he is putting creation right, when he's restoring God's original creation to what it was always intended to be, to that harmony which was always God's purpose and intention. So when he stills the storm, uh, so it's no longer a threat to his other creatures, when he heals people of, of conditions that are bedeviling them, interesting word, <laughs> um, and, and when he undoes death, that's the sovereignty of God breaking into human history. Sorry, I was, it was sort of following on, on from that question, really. It just, uh, you, you mentioned that the four sort of classic arguments are ultimately unsatisfactory. Um, they're still good arguments, and they can still contain a lot of truth. And I wonder if it, uh, it might be more helpful to say they're ultimately incomprehensible, that because we're finite human beings, we won't understand the ways of God. I know it sounds like a cop-out, but it's true, uh, that God is sovereign, um, and so, for example, in um, the end of the J Jacob story, um, Joseph, uh, sorry, Joseph's story, he says, you meant to do me evil, but God meant it for good. Uh, and, of course, who could picture how that story would unfold but other than God? And whether, wonder whether our sort of attempts to answer it are just sort of a rather anthropomorphic, anthropocentric effort. Well, in a sense, what I've tried to do is to de-anthropocentrize <laughs> Uh, the physician by putting different bits of the jigsaw uh, on the table. Um, I think, of course, we need to be careful not to be too sure, too confident in these areas um, and to recognize our finitude and fallenness, which distorts our perception. All I think I'm asking, and of course, those are good arguments that one can use. All I'm asking us is not to say things that I think are really unhelpful. So that we don't say um, that God is behind your suffering. Because I think as Christians who follow Jesus, we have no warrant for doing so. If Jesus is our window on the nature and purpose and will of God, uh, as we believe he is, we have no justification for saying that God wants suffering. And that's what I'm very, very keen that we should do. What you, there's very little you can do, or say, rather, that's going to help somebody who's suffering. There's very little you can say that will help them. There are things you can say that will make it worse. And almost what I'm, what I'm, what I'm saying is the same as Hippocrates says, do not make it worse. Uh, and I think when you suggest that evil or suffering is the purpose of God, you make it worse because you make God the enemy. If somebody lost a child and you suggest that that's in some way part of the plan or purpose of God, you make God their enemy. Yes, yes, yes. Now, God can bring good out of suffering, but when he, we, when he does that, it's he we have to thank, him we have to thank, not the suffering. Uh, what he does is he retrospectively invests suffering with a purpose it does not intrinsically have. When this world cuts itself off from God, who is the source of purpose, the one who has purposes, things happen that have no purpose. Uh, 
And that's why we must never say when somebody's suffering, I'm sure God has his purposes. Yes, he does, but this is not it. What he can do is retrospectively invest it with a purpose it does not in and of itself have. Uh, And that is good, that's important, it doesn't make it okay. Uh, So what I'm saying is, is, is an appeal to be careful about what we say and not say things that are Christologically unwarranted, if I can put it like that. We're coming into that, and we're going to just take one or two more questions before we close. Thank you. Um, the power of God. I'm almost taking away from what you're saying that there are powers that can actually stop God. The Anglican first article, as you know, says that God is of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness. Are you questioning that? No, I'm not. I'm absolutely saying that uh, you only have a problem of evil if you accept the utter powerfulness of God and the utter uh, goodness of God. And I'm holding on to both those things. What I am saying is that God does not use power in such a way as to override the freedom that he has given he gives that freedom. He loan, loans out that freedom. He remains the well, he, he he is the source of all power. He has given us power t- to use. He's loaned it out to us. He remains its owner, uh, and therefore he can call it back, and he can call us to account for it. But in the meantime, and he will. That's what judgment is. But in the meantime, he respects the use that we put it to. Uh, and we have to recognize part of being a proper creature, improperly creaturely dependent upon God, is recognizing where our power comes from. That's what Jesus says to Pilate. Uh, but he doesn't stop Pilate from exercising that power wrongly. Uh, he just points out to him where it comes from. Uh, and so I'm not saying God is not powerful. I'm saying he does not use his power to override the uses that we put, the power that he's given us. Uh, one of the things about, uh, I've been a college chaplain uh, a, a number of times in the different places, different colleges, and you always think that the, the master or the provost or the principal or whatever has enormous power. Uh, and they can do anything. Um, and the longer you go on, the more you realize that isn't the case, um, that it's usually the senior tutor or somebody like that who actually has it. Uh, and there, there are huge amounts of concern. And when now I've become a principal in Hello House, uh, I suddenly realize the enormous number of constraints upon me. In the same way, children think their parents can do anything. And when you become a parent, you think, oh, it's not quite that easy. And I wonder whether there isn't some sense in which the same is true of God. Not that he's not powerful, but that the constraints upon the use of that power are perhaps more than we finite creatures can imagine. And, and the main one is his love and his respect for the freedom that he's given us. Uh, Mike, um, Psalm 55, 15 uh, calls uh, David's prayer is for the death of his enemies, surprise death, and that they go down to the grave alive. 
Is that not prayer itself evil, or is that an acceptable prayer? One of the things about the Psalms is a very good question. Um, one of the things about the Psalms is that they allow us to pray things. They give us words with which to say things, outrageous things sometimes, um, because it's better to say them than to repress them. What God does with that prayer is a different matter. Uh, and there are a number of ways in which the fuller revelation that we have of God in Jesus needs us to, forces us to rethink, reshape um, how we conceive of him from how he was conceived before Christ came along. It has made a difference. The, the life, death, incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has made a difference. And one of the ways in which it has made a difference is how we think of our enemies. Um, Jesus tells us to pray for them and to love them. Um, that doesn't mean that we can't use the Psalms, and I think pastorally, psychologically, that's actually an important thing. You can say what you like to God, but you have to do it in this new context. And that's why the church has, I think, wisely tacked on the gloria to the end of the saying of the Psalms, which is a way of saying there's, a, there's an interpretive job to be done here. You can't just say them. You have to say them in the light of the Trinitarian understanding of God that we have because of the coming of Jesus. Uh, so, yes, we can say that psalm, but we have to say it recognizing that things have changed in our understanding and knowledge and service of God. Um, and, you know, there are ways in which the New Testament reshapes uh, how we conceive of God and how we serve him. Um, of course it does, because... There's a f the fullest possible revelation of God in, in the person of Jesus. It's him, him we follow. It's, it's, it's Yeshua, not Yoshua. If I can put it that, that way. Mike, thank you so much. We're going to need to leave it there for yes. time this morning, but hugely helpful. Um, I know I, for one, will need to revisit this talk, listen again uh, online, but thank you for coming to be it's, with it's us. His way, it's his nice way of saying that he's heard all the jokes before. <laughs> I've actually made a note of one or two of the jokes to use them <laughs> in my own material. So uh, do join us. Um, but Mike, thank you for coming. 4 a.m. from Oxford, very gritty. Uh, we wish you all the best, God's best, uh, on your return home um, and beyond. But uh, would you pray for us yeah, before, I would we, indeed. before we go? Lord, in the end, the only solution to the problem of evil is that which you will bring about uh, when you return putting creation right, healing it, restoring it to your original purposes. Uh, and we pray that you will use us as agents of that new creation, that you will use us to bring help uh, to those who suffer, that you'll give us wisdom in the words that we use so that we do not make their problem worse, but we let them know uh, of, that they are not alone, that they are supported, that they are loved, uh, and that you are on their side. And we pray today for the people we meet that you will help us to help them bear whatever burdens they carry, whether we see those burdens or not. Help us to be agents of your new kingdom, your new creation, uh, free from all that mars and crushes the old creation.
So thank you for that hope, and may we be bearers of that hope to your world. Amen. Amen. Uh, Mike, thank you so much. Uh, just to say, gents, um, donations box, uh, if you would like to donate to the ministry on your way out. Uh, we're back in two weeks for our final Burning Man of Term. We've got Charlie Screen, uh, a minister at St. Helens Bishopsgate, coming to finish our series on uh, uh, promises and warnings uh, to keep us from Scripture. Um, and also, if, if you don't receive an email from me... From Scripture? Sorry, not to do, do you scripture. want to keep us from Scripture? Is that early, your aim, start, No, to, to drive us, drive us to, from Scripture, from Scripture. Oh, yeah. Promises and warnings to keep us. Um, that's why I'm not doing your job. Uh, and if you're not getting an email from me reminding you about Burning Man sessions, then I don't have your email. So please come and give it to me right now. God bless. See you in two weeks.